Welcome to the MacroFab Engineering Podcast, everyone. We are your guests, Luca Govadich and Charlie Garcia. And also joining us are your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 195. Thank you so much for uh, introducing us. So, uh, what? yeah, what are we going to be talking about today, Luca and Charlie? Uh, so, uh, Luca and I are here from the MIT rocket team. Uh, we design, build, and launch experimental high-powered sounding rockets. And we're developing the technology to help uh, democratize access to space. So let me go ahead and, and read your bios real quick, just so we can give uh, a little bit of a background here. So Luca is a 20-year-old sophomore from Slovenia, majoring in electrical engineering and computer science. Luca joined the MIT rocket team last fall and has been the leader of the avionics sub team since July. He's also part of the MIT varsity soccer team. In his free time, he likes to play frisbee, drums, and compose music. Charlie attended space camp as a kid every year he could. He became one of the counselors. Charlie enjoys sharing his love of space exploration with people of all ages and walks of life through various mediums. In 2018, he led the MIT rocket team as president to launch the Project Hermes to 32,400 feet. Now, as the publicity chair of the MIT rocket team, Charlie hopes to inspire others to explore the heavens. When Charlie isn't building rockets, he's using his telescope, tinkering with his 3D printer, or enjoying a fantasy novel. So thank you, Luca and Charlie, for uh, introducing the podcast and Stephen and I. You guys are the first guests who have ever introduced us. I aim to please. <laughs> shoot shoot for the heavens, right? <laughs> so guys, uh, what is the MIT rocket team? Besides the obvious of it being from MIT and it being about rockets and it being a team. Well, the, the rocket team is really a, a student engineering group and uh, it's, it's kind of changed forms a lot. It's almost 25 years old now, uh, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, and really what it is, is it's a way to bring hands-on engineering experience to the students at MIT. MIT delivers a very, very incredible theoretical education. Um, but that education is, is kind of wasted unless you can apply it. Um, the MIT motto is mens et manus, which means mind and hands. And uh, MIT, our classes cover the mind part pretty effectively. And on the rocket team, our goal is to give our student engineers the hands part of the the MIT experience. Uh, I, I see that on this podcast, I will also learn something about the history of rocket team myself. Um, but um, yeah, our um, our goals are uh, we have a pre pre um, how to say a precisely set goals. The first goal is to teach people engineering skills to get them jobs in aerospace engineering. The second goal is to launch uh, fully student built rockets to space, and then our third goal is to publicize rocket science and. Uh, through various outreach programs um, and get more people excited and involved with rocketry. Cool. So what is what is y'all's current projects right now? So we've got we've got kind of three ongoing projects at the moment. Um, we have Project Hermes. Uh, Project Hermes is on its third rocket. Uh, Project Hermes is goals originally were to develop uh, rocket team technology necessary to fly a rocket to approximately 100,000 feet. Um, and so then our second project we've got going on is called Staging Demonstrator. Uh, the Staging Demonstrator's goal is to develop the technology necessary to fly multi-staged rockets. 
Um, and then our third project is kind of a little unrelated to the first two. It's building a bipropellant liquid rocket engine. Liquid rocket engines are more complicated, more efficient, and more powerful than solid rocket engines, and they scale better. Um, but they are they are really a pain in the butt to develop. Um, so I'm kind of working on all three of these projects in support of our ultimate goal, which, as Luca mentioned, is, is uh, to go to space, uh, to launch a rocket to space, um, an entirely student-built rocket. So um, Project Hermes is supposed to be the first stage of our space flight. That is the large booster rocket that carries um, a smaller, more efficient rocket to a high altitude and a high velocity. Staging Demonstrator is developing the critical technologies we need for that two-stage rocket. Uh, staging rockets is a really challenging exercise, and if you do it wrong, uh, it, it you know can break both stages. Uh, so you know SpaceX actually has failed a couple of flights because of staging difficulties. Um, you know uh, staging difficulties are a real like failing to stage ca causes a lot of rocket failures as well. Um, and then, of course, the liquid engine is just kind of a long future outlook project that if we develop that technology on the team, then we have that as a resource we can use to build future rockets that don't just use solid rockets, but also can be liquid powered, uh, which are both more controllable and more powerful. So you were mentioning about um, solid rockets and staging. So your staging rocket is going to be all solid state? That's correct. Um, so the I guess solid state's the wrong word. Solid fuel. Yeah, solid fuel. Yep. So the MIT rocket team has some of the largest student-built solid rockets in the country. I think last time I checked, the only university with a larger rocket than ours was USC, um, and they do have a seven-year head start on this. And they're they're brilliant, awesome engineers. So uh, I'm totally okay uh, having to wait a couple of years before we can claim that title. Um, but. Uh, we really have worked hard to to develop some really large rocket technology uh, using solids. So, and also you said, um, I think actually it was uh, Stephen in the bio is so thirty two thousand feet is not the space then. No, space is three hundred and thirty thousand feet. Okay, or a magnitude more. <laughs> three hundred and thirty. Yeah. How many miles? Is that 60, 62 and a half miles? Yep, you got it, Stephen. Cool. Um, so what, what's the challenges then for staging? Like, oh, and, for staging. I guess kind of got to explain what staging is for people as well. Right. So, um, the briefly staging as a concept is important in rocketry because in rockets, it doesn't actually matter how much fuel you bring with you. It matters what percentage of your rocket is fuel. So that means that a rocket that is 50% fuel will go just as far, regardless of if it weighs a million pounds on the launch pad or 10 pounds on the launch pad. Um, so what staging lets you do is staging lets you drop unused mass, right? So especially with solid rocket motors, you need to have this big, heavy case that holds all of your solid rocket propellant. Um, and once you burn the solid rocket propellant out of it, all of that case weight is no longer useful. So by having a two-stage rocket, it gives you an opportunity to uh, shed weight and reduce the total weight of your vehicle so you get more bang for your buck from your remaining fuel. But of course, this has lots of challenges, both from a mechanical and a controls perspective. You need to hold the rockets together very securely through uh, Mach 3 flight before you stage them. Uh, they will reach a higher ultimate speed, so you need to have the thermal protection systems necessary to protect all the components. And then also, um, and Luca is more qualified to speak about these, the uh, control problems, right? When is it appropriate to stage? And also, if you stage incorrectly, you can create a very hazardous situation for people on the ground. Uh, so, uh, you know, um, uh, you, Luca, do you want to do you want to talk about all the work we have to do to do to figure out when we can and whether we should stage? I guess you would also create a hazardous situation for birds. 
<laughs> I, I don't think we're that concerned about birds. There's many more, uh, uh, more dangerous things to think about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but definitely we do not intend to hurt any animals. Just we're very sorry to any birds we may or may not hit on the way up, and we appreciate their sacrifice for the good of all of humankind in our endeavor to reach space. Uh, we will mourn their loss and tragically push forward to honor their memory. Exactly. That was a, that was an excellent save. Yeah, we are we are also launching in the desert, so there is not many birds in our way. So, for all all the bird lovers, you don't. <laughs> where where do you all launch at? Um. So this year we launched in the Mojave. Yeah, the Mojave Desert in California. We, we've discovered a sp special breed of uh, suicidal jackrabbit uh, a couple of years ago on our way to a launch. We, we have really good drivers. I mean, like, you know, we, we take care to put people who are responsible and good at driving the cars. And we're heading out to the launch site, and it's about 4 a.m., uh, and we're driving out. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these bunny rabbits start jumping into the middle of the road, like, directly in front of our car. It was awful. They were, like, they were attacking our car and, like, dying. <laughs> And we thought it was just our car, like our driver's like traumatized and she's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm killing all of the bunny rabbits. And we get out and the driver of the car in front of us is like, oh my God, new bunny high score. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 were we were talking about um, uh, getting potentially demonetized if you had YouTube videos. I feel like that's something that could get you demonetized right there. Talking about <laughs> like the bunny, I, 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 bunny yeah. apocalypse. <laughs> We felt so bad. I mean, we weren't doing anything. It was either the sound or I don't know. It was something. Something about the cars was confusing the bunnies. Um, it was. It was not great. Um, but but uh, it happened, and we got that rocket launched. And I think I think the birds were okay. The bunnies were not. But yeah, coming back to the actual dangers of uh, staging. Um, so uh, as you imagine, as Charlie explained, you have to drop the dead weight, um, and then after that, you light up you ignite the second uh, motor, right? So on the second stage, you ignite the propellant that's there after you stage. And uh, you don't want to do that just in any condition because if your second stage is pointing downwards, you don't want to ignite the engine because that would turn your uh, your uh, nice rocket project into a very dangerous missile. Uh, and actually a lot of our legal implications and, uh, and uh, struggles we have come from the fact that our rockets aren't very far from you know, missiles in their shape and uh, the way they behave. What's the what's the defining factor between a rocket and a missile? Charlie? Uh, there, there really isn't one. Yeah, yeah. There, so, so actually, to this day, if you launch from a military-controlled launch site, uh, they will say missile away when you launch a rocket. Um, so the, uh, the, I mean, the uh, ultimate distinction between a rocket and a missile is... Uh, you know, attended uh, use what? probably. Yeah, one's a weapon and one is not, right? It's either for science or for murdering bunny rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, there, but but their truck was for both of those. It sounds like. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, they, it it could be both, right? You know, you launch you launch a rocket that's got some missiles on it for like anti-satellite. So I don't know. I'm I'm just being facetious. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I think the payload can make a difference, and definitely, yeah, the way you define it and the way you define successful mission. <laughs> I mean, I think I think Luca, Luca actually hit the nail on the head there. The mission, if you write the, the mission of a rocket, is you know deployment of some payload for some pr purpose, and you know the the mission of a missile is to to hit something hard and fast. 
And I think uh, if if our rocket hits something hard and fast, we all we all go home crying, right? You know, I got to build another one. Um, so so I think that's the difference right there. Yeah. yeah, you guys, you guys want your missile back. <laughs> yes. Correct. Well, not not yeah. all not all rockets are recovered, right? Um, so a lot of launch vehicles, especially the larger they get, are not actually recovered. Um, SpaceX is, and Blue Origin are changing that, but um, you know, still most rockets are expendable uh, because remember how we were talking about how the the ratio of fuel to rocket is what defines how far you can go. Uh, it doesn't care if you're bringing a parachute with you; that's still weight you didn't spend on fuel, and uh, that'll that'll hurt you. So in in rocket design, what kind of testing do you all have to do when you're building and developing this technology? So uh, we do all sorts of testing and we the only discussions we have about testing is are we doing are we not doing enough testing and how can we do more testing? Uh, because um, <laughs> yep. it's a large project. It's a. Uh, it's a large Luca, project. You just want to spot my heart right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you, we, we put a lot of engineering hours into this and everything is, can be decided in a matter of seconds. Like, like it was this July when we lost Hermes two due to fin failure, seven seconds into flight. So we ignite the motor seven, six, seconds, three, five. six one, three, five, um, seconds after it's all over. You know, and uh, you definitely don't want to, don't want that to happen. You you hate to see it. So um, that's why we do a lot of testing. Uh, this testing ranges from very basic elementary tests at the smallest level. So in our software, even we do unit tests, which are testing every single component of the code. Then we put those together to test the code itself. Then we test hardware separately. Then we test code on the hardware. Then we test all of the hardware mechanical components. We have, um, um, so we assemble a motor and then we uh, have a static fire where we just attach the motor and point it, point it upside down. So it's right, right. So uh, pretty much what we do with that uh, static fire is just characterize the, the motor. Um, we, um, Pretty much just tell, test the motor in isolation um, and get its curve, its uh, thrust curve. Um, we get its pressure curve um, and pretty much see how it behaves. Sometimes it also blows up. So this static fire is done uh, with everyone being very far away and just some cameras and microphones on the site. Uh, and yeah, uh, Charlie, if you want to talk about it more, you were uh, many more static fires than me. Yeah, so about about the rocket motors. So y'all build the rocket motors yourselves, then? Yeah, yeah, we make them from scratch. Um, which is I, so so I didn't say this in my bio, but I this is my fifth year on the team. Um, so I've I've been around since the team had about ten people, uh, and this year the team has one hundred and twenty. Is that because of Kerbal Space Program? No, no, it's uh, probably because of recruiting events. Um, so like. Uh, you know, so we, we always used to get like 110 people would come to our first meeting, but then, you know, our rockets weren't that cool. We weren't that good. We, you know, we didn't have that much work for people to do. So people kind of would drift away. But now um, we've built a much better base. We're able to utilize those resources and support more people. Um, making a rocket motor is a pretty, pretty involved process. So you start by acquiring all the chemical precursors that go into uh, your, your rocket motor. And then you go through a process called mixing, where you take these polymers and you chemically 
mix them, and then you cast them into the shape of the solid rocket fuel, which is actually a very important step. The shape of the rocket fuel uh, is what controls how much thrust the rocket motor produces. Uh, and then you allow this propellant to cure. You assemble several different slugs of propellant, we call them grains, uh, together. That way you don't have to cast it all at once. Um, and you, you put them inside of a thermal liner to protect the case from the hot combustion gases. And then uh, you install uh, closures to create a pressure vessel, add the nozzle, and then you've got a rocket motor. Um, and this, this philosophy holds true between you know little Estes motors you purchase at the hobby store all the way up to the, the P-sized motors we create for our rocket, and hopefully in the future, Q and R and S-sized motors. Um, so the, the process is, is really the same. The question is the scale that you operate at. And of course, you know, there's some hazard to this because you're literally mixing rocket fuel. Um, and uh, you know, that's, the chemicals themselves are a little bit toxic, and they're all very flammable. Um, working with powdered aluminum, that's explosive. Ammonium perchlorate, that can actually be a rocket fuel all on its own. If you heat it up too much, it will decompose exothermically. Um, so a lot of fun stuff. What causes these static rocket fires to fail then sometimes is it is just because uh like improper mixing or or a bubble in your in your res in your pour or something like that yeah you, you hit on actually a couple of key points so there's there's two categories of errors there's design errors and there's manufacturing errors and um to this point most of our failures have been actually i think all of our failures have been manufacturing errors um so design errors are like things where the design never would have worked no matter how well you made it, whereas manufacturing errors are things like an improperly compressed O-ring, a uh, scratch on the thermal liner leads to a burn through, which leads to the metal melting, uh, leading to the case melting itself, um, a nozzle that cracks because you made too sharp of a corner on it, so a stress concentrator causes it to break in half. Like you said, a bubble in the propellant will cause a void. Um, this will cause a radical increase in pressure for a brief period of time. If your motor case isn't strong enough, that can be enough to eject the nozzle from the motor. Um, and those, that's, a, that's a failure we've seen before. Um, there's, there's a whole list of them, and we've just kind of internally built up uh, knowledge about how all these failures can happen and ways to mitigate and check for that. Yeah, so how, how, how do you go about the failure analysis of something that just exploded? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> it's an interesting question because we've done this before, and... You know, when you first walk up to it, what you really see is you see a pile of charred parts. Um, and everyone's first temptation is to start grabbing everything and turning it over and picking it up and looking at it. And you have to, you have to, you know, grab anyone who starts to make a break for it and tie them behind you. And you, the very first thing you do is you take pictures, pictures of everything, where the debris landed, how far away it was, um, you know, what condition it was. Was it charred on both sides? Was it charred on only one side? Uh, and then, and then we begin a process called a trash bag recovery, uh, which is as sad as it sounds. You get a trash bag and you very carefully put everything into it, um, both indicating on a metaphysical level what it is. It is trash, but also on a spiritual level how you feel. Uh, you feel like trash, and then, and then um, you put this trash bag in the car, and then you you drive to a fast food joint that accentuates that feeling of trashness you have, and you eat some cheap trash junk food and then you go and then you go home uh and you you pull up the trash bag and you set all the parts on a table and you you try and fit them back together and you see what's missing because what's missing is really the first important piece of information you can discover because that's that what vaporized first right 
Well, it, it tells you where the problem started. It may not be what caused it, but it, it tells you where the problem started. So like, sometimes that's not helpful. I remember on the very, uh, well, it wasn't the very, on the third rocket motor we static fired, um, we had a forward closure failure and more than 14 inches of the case was just melted. It was liquid aluminum on the ground and you like picked it up and it looked like if you just like taken aluminum out of a foundry and just like poured it on the ground, that's what it looked like. So there was like no information to be had there other than that it was melted, right? And it, clearly it was a very energetic failure. Um, so, then, so then you start looking for other parts, right? And so what was held at the other end of all that melted aluminum was a piece called the forward closure. And the forward closure was actually found intact several hundred feet away, which told us that um, the forward closure has been ejected forcefully from the rocket motor. And this was a good place to start our failure investigation. And when we found the forward closure, it looks it's a, the forward closure is normally a disc. It's a circle. And we found it, it looked like it had had a slice of pie cut out of it. And we were actually able to trace the failure back to an unsealed joint where hot gas had leaked through the unsealed joint and eroded away this pie-shaped wedge from it, which then liberated this disc, throwing it out. And then all the fire was coming out of both ends of the rocket motor. But of course, while the nozzle is rated for all that heat, the other end of the rocket motor is just aluminum, so it melted. Um, and that's how we were able to deduce what happened in that failure. Uh, and of course, you guys, you guys may not realize this, but the exhaust, the primary exhaust compounds are water, carbon dioxide, hydrochloric acid, and alumina oxide. And of course, alumina oxide is the primary component of sandpaper. So our rocket exhaust is not just hot combustion products. It's actually like Mach 5 sandpaper. So, you know, the typical surface... It's like a water jet, except it's a fire jet, fire jet cutter. That's that's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's 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 harder than garnet. So um, that's that's exactly the problem. So any unprotected material in the exhaust stream will be eroded away almost immediately, um, which is how that pie shape got generated. So so this is just one of the like counterintuitive things that you like see. Um, we had some other interesting failures. Like we had one where we just didn't put enough glue on a joint and you're like, Oh, so it like came unglued. No. So we were using the glue as a seal and hot gas leaked through where there wasn't enough glue. And as we just talked about the hot glue, the hot gas acts like sandpaper. It just blew through it. And then, you know, water jetted a hole through the case. And then once the rocket motor loses pressure, um, a nifty feature of the rocket fuel use is actually that it can't burn at atmospheric pressure. You have to raise the pressure for it to burn. Uh, successfully. So if the pressure ever, you know, decreases, it'll actually shut down. And so this leads to this really weird case where you could approach a failed rocket motor and find it still half full of rocket fuel that is stopped burning. And of course, this can be very hazardous because it can still be very hot. So it could still reignite. So you have to, you have to take precautions when approaching a failed rocket motor, but. So the actual, uh, the nozzle, if it, how is it uh, designed and how is it made and what's it made of to be able to withstand Mach 5 sandpaper? Great question. Um, typically graphite. Graphite is a good material choice. Um, we add a, a blade of coating of phenolic. This phenolic undergoes a phase change and as it changes phase, it absorbs a lot of energy. And it also creates a layer of cooler gas along the wall to help insulate our parts from the hot combustion gases. Um, some parts of it are aluminum. Um, some parts of it can be carbon fiber. Um, there's a lot of options. Uh, none of them will survive steady state rocket operation. So you're, you're really just selecting materials that you can control the failure, uh, like the destruction of in a controlled fashion. 
Um, so you're like, all right, well, I know graphite will break off at this rate in the rocket environment. So if we make it at least this thick, we'll be okay. Um, same thing with the phenolic, same thing with the aluminum. There are consumables along with the fuel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, our rocket motors are recovered, but they're, they're functionally single use. Like maybe you could use the case again. I'd be worried about that because I think it gets detempered by all the heat. Um, but, but I really wouldn't use any part of the nozzle again. How, how do you actually go about shaping the nozzle? Is it put turned on a lathe or? Yep. I've turned dozens of the things and you look like a coal miner for about a week afterwards because the graphite covers your face and you just, you can see exactly where this, your uh, goggles were on your face as you turned it. Um, usually you have a little vacuum to try and keep the dust down, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an experience. All right. So after you built and tested your rocket parts and stuff, who do you need to go to to make sure that someone doesn't say it's a missile and it's actually a rocket? Like who, who do you need to get permission from to launch this thing? <laughs> Luca, do you want to do you want to take this one? I believe you you did most of the FAA waivers yourself, Charlie. <laughs> I did, uh, but I can start explaining. I, yeah. I have a little bit of trauma. Yeah, so um, we need uh, 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 two words you hear a lot when planning launch uh, are uh, FAA and waiver. Uh, so pretty much we have to fill out this and and get an FAA waiver, which is the federal. Aviation Association, is that it? Administration, but yes. Charlie. Okay, <laughs> close. I was close. Um, <laughs> so um, pretty much, we have to. You know, our rocket goes to um, the the one uh, the one two years ago went to ten kilometers or thirty two thousand feet. This one was supposed to go to to eighty thousand feet or almost thirty kilometers, um, a bit more actually, yeah, or less. Okay, I'm bad with converting units. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Something around there. Uh, and uh, yeah, most commercial airliners fly at thirty to forty thousand feet. So you know, our uh, even though our rocket's going up, uh, if there would be an airplane <laughs> above it, I'm pretty sure it would just pierce right through. And that's not something. It that... would have turned into a missile at that point. <laughs> I can I can hear the FAA watching this, revoking it's our mission change already. <laughs> yeah, ground to air missile. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so pretty much, yeah, the FAA will, uh, we need to, we, uh, fill out a waiver in which we describe how, how, how high will the rocket go? We have to describe our analysis for like, we have to provide analysis for a landing. So we have to say, okay, we estimate that the rocket will, with this kind of inclination and this kind of winds, it will land approximately here. So into this, a lot, a lot of thought has to go into this. Because um, first of all, we don't launch our rockets straight up, but we give them a slight tilt at the start, uh, so that because if you launch a rocket straight up, the wind or the uh, its pitch can turn it anywhere. But if you like, if you fire it at a certain direction, you know it's gonna go into that direction. So usually we do that um, just to you know um, get a better uh, idea of where it's gonna come down. Because uh, it can happen that the rocket comes down. This summer, the uh, the ballistic recovery was not recovery's fault. Recovery de avionics and recovery deployed the parachutes. It just so happened that there were no parachutes left to deploy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so to so to. 
to, to briefly cover though what, what that looks like. So you get permission from the FAA, like Lucas said, you got to yeah, cut them some slack. But then on the day of launch, you submit a you submit a call to the local uh, flight standards district office, and you let them know that you're activating the waiver. They then inform uh, the air crews in the vicinity that there are operations occurring in that area and uh, to steer clear. Uh, so technically, it's technically it's the uh, pilot's fault if they have a rocket-shaped hole in the bottom of their airplane, but uh, but we can't rely on that because it doesn't matter if it, the pilot was dumb and flew over our reserved airspace, uh, even though we we asked the FAA for it, uh, because I'm sure the papers will still uh, crucify us just the same, uh, you know, for shooting down an airplane. So we really have we we take care. We we can't fly through clouds. We check the airspace. Um, I remember this last summer, we had to launch the rocket within half an hour or not fly that day because the military was doing a predator overflight to survey for uh, earthquake damage at their Air Force Base uh, or the Naval Air Station nearby. So that we, got, we got a phone call. We we're like, hey, we're shutting down your waiver in this much time because the military is flying a drone. Um, so just kind of like these are, these are the, the adventures of, of uh, rocket launches. Um, and if I was the military, I would have practiced shooting down your missile or I mean, rocket, <laughs> rocket. <laughs> so, so do you have to do you have to pay for this? Is there like a fee? Nope. Uh, there's no fee to file with the FAA. It's it's public airspace. Um, you may have to pay a site fee depending on where you're launching from. I think we pay ten dollars a launch for our, our launch site. Uh which is kind of funny. It's, you know, like a, what are a thirty thousand dollar rocket and uh, we pay ten dollars to launch it. Um, the old site we used to use had about $1,100 a flight in launch fees. Um, it, it was just a little different. It had more infrastructure. Um, you, you, you pick your site and you make it work. There's one place on the East, East coast. You can actually launch these rockets from, uh, it's called Wallops Island, Virginia. And we looked at flying out of there and the, the two problems were one, we'd have to recover the rocket from the water. So we'd have to like waterproof everything and put a flotation system on it. And the second problem was that they wanted like a hundred thousand dollars a launch. Uh, cause they're used to supporting like actual rockets, like, uh, you know, SpaceX and orbital ATK, or I guess, uh, sorry, Northrop Grumman innovation systems. Um, and so they were, they were just like, no, we're going to charge what we charge them. And we're like, we can't pay that. <laughs> so we spend in a year, maybe two years, maybe three years. See, you should have used a .edu email address and got we that did. student we discount. Did. Are you are you kidding? This is, every, this is everything we do. We go, hello, this is a student from MIT rocket team. We're poor and broke and trying to launch rockets. Will you please give us free things? Uh, and then when they say no free things, then we start talking about what we'll pay them. Yeah. I mean, using an edu email, that's the pretty much the description of what I do on the internet and every single thing uh, that you have to pay for. It's just like, you know, gotta use yeah. it. Well, and this, is, this it. is a good segue to plug uh, plug the, the good things Macrofab has done for us, right? Uh, I wasn't paid to say this or anything, um, but, but Macrofab very generously helped us get some of our parts made, um, which, is, which is, you know, essential to what we do. The in-kind sponsorships, um, you know, not a lot of companies give us money, um, but the companies that let us get parts made, that's, that's critical. And uh, we make almost the entire rocket from scratch. We lay up raw carbon fiber into aerodynamic parts. We machine the motor case from stock aluminum. We cast our rocket fuel from industrial chemicals. We you know, build and program our own flight computer. We sew our own parachutes. And, and the companies that are willing to give us the materials, expertise, and tool time to get, make this happen are, are really essential for this rocket happening. I just hope it wasn't a little red PCB that made that rocket blow up. 
It wasn't. Uh, avionics, <laughs> avionics hasn't crashed the rocket the entire time I've been on the team. Uh, we've, we've had a couple of recovery failures. We've had a couple of propulsion failures. We've had a couple of structural failures, but it's never been avionics. So you can take that one to the bank. So speaking of that, what kind of electronic hardware do y'all run? So, um, yeah, uh, our uh, rocket has actually um, the so the the rocket how it's structured pretty much is the motor case, the mission package, and then the nose cone uh, with the payload. And uh, the mission package is pretty much the recovery system with parachutes, and then the avionics bay. And the avionics bay is a like a hexagonal structure that's just full of boards and electronics and batteries. Um, so what we run is first off we are we have two commercial off-the-shelf altimeters on there first uh, because um, um, due to time pressure and uh, uh, developmental efforts we weren't able to um, complete our own flight computer reliably so we're not flying it in command yet so it's not the one that is responsible for deploying the parachutes um, but it is like the hardware is there. The software is almost there, and we are just pretty much a few tests away from. Clear. So, so you're using a so using a off-the-shelf computer currently to get through like designing the 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 propulsion and and structural stuff, and then your your computer that y'all are designing piggybacks off that for the ride, right? For now. For now, yeah, but also it does a lot of important things. So the only thing that it doesn't do, which is which is the most important thing, uh, parachute deployment, and then on a staging demonstrator, also staging, and uh, second stage ignition. Uh, but it does what it does for now is it monitors and uh, turns on the cameras. Um, it it maintains a stable and much better radio connection than the commercial ones do. Um, it it records data. Um, to much more detail and with better sensors than the commercial ones. So pretty much when it was built, it was built with the intention to replace the commercial ones and be better at better at all the jobs that commercial ones are doing right now. Um, and yeah, it's pretty much there. Just like we right now, we are on a tight schedule for Hermes 3 and we'd rather just go with a little safer option and fly it with their computers. Uh, with the commercial ones, but then uh, we will collect data on our own one, and then we'll have this data to test our own computer, so it will be ready for space shot. Uh, but yeah, to continue, so we have two commercial ones. We have our own flight computer. We have uh, a camera board and uh, um, connect to the cameras uh, through their USB connector. It's uh, pretty cumbersome, but that just Right now we're sticking with those cameras, unfortunately, and uh, that's just how we have to do it. Uh, and uh, it also collects feedback from cameras, which is what we're working on right now uh, to see. So on the launch pad, we send commands to our flight computer and observe if the cameras are recording or not. Because um, video is not the most important part in most rockets, because the most important part is the payload. But for us, PR is, is all we have. So having video from flight. I was about to say, getting that sweet Instagram shot is probably the most, most exactly, important thing. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so video is really important to us. Um, and yeah. We were we were just talking with a crew from uh, from uh, Relativity Space, 
Yeah. And they said, you know, uh, they said, you know, our primary mission is to fly customers' payloads to orbit. And if we miss some video, you know, so be it. You know, we, as long as we still successfully deployed the payload. And we're like, no, 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 you got it all backwards. You see, for us, we aren't getting paid to do this. We're paying to do this. Exactly. So for us, if we don't get any video, did it even happen? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there is video recording the, oh, cool. the, the rocket taking off, but that's just, you know, like a few milli, a few milliseconds. A few, a few hundred milliseconds, if you will, but still, that's all you see, and then it just, uh, just the, the trace in the sky. So not having video from the rocket is definitely something we don't want, uh, and it's probably one of the biggest so, things we get from the launch. So what kind of power do you run? Like what kind of batteries? Double A batteries, nine volt lantern battery. <laughs> what what on earth is this two cell lipo on the rocket for? I've been trying to get an answer for this for like weeks um sorry i'm taking this opportunity for some for some uh technical discussion so uh, <laughs> what are you asking why are we using a 2s instead of a 1s lipo yeah if you, if you get this down to a 1s lipo we have full battery commonality and then we don't have to like worry about which battery goes where well that's a that's a very good point uh but i believe that um at least one of the sensors i'm tempted to say gps but i'm not 100 percent sure is is running on five volts and not 3.3 i think in general oh you're killing me i think so but I, i'm not 100 percent sure i think our, i'm pretty sure our mic microprocessor slap a, bo a boost converter in there um I'm, I'm pretty sure that yeah you can just run a little boost converter yeah yeah um there is some uh some i mean it's 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 not necessarily worth it i was i'm 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 an i'm a systems guy so i look at this and i say wow we're maintaining uh, you know three parts uh, for for the 2s lipo when we are already maintaining three parts for the 1s lipo if we can kill the one 2s lipo on the vehicle right. then right. Uh, you know all of a sudden now we we have fewer piece parts we have a, a more straightforward electronics uh, power system yeah yeah it's a, actually a good question so um last year i was uh, more involved with the software so i'm also getting more familiar with the with the exact hardware so that's i'm not 100 percent sure uh, why we are running off of a 2s but i'm i am sure that it it's because one of the components at least requires five volts and um, that's why you can't just run it off of 3.3 we have a separate battery for a couple things so first of all we run a battery and a backup main and a backup battery uh, you know uh, just for redundancy then we also have separate batteries for pyro channels although they're not connected so our flight computer is designed to you know once at some point uh, um, deploy the parachutes and how we deploy them is with a pyro charge that ignites the actuator that pushes the piston and uh, separates the rocket in two parts. Um, and those pyros are are to be controlled uh, and powered through a separate battery. But as I said, our computer is not deploying parachutes, so I don't think there is a battery for pyros right now. Um, and um, yeah, so I haven't finished with the list of hardware yet. I haven't mentioned cameras yet. Uh, and then uh, the other thing we have is a DAC or the data acquisition board. Uh, so that's actually payloads, not avionics, but it's still um, still a board that is on our rocket. We have a couple actually, one in the nose cone and one uh, in the lower electronics, which is next to the motor, just above it. Um, and those DACs, pretty much what they do is just collect a lot of data. They collect more acceleration data than our own 
than our main flight computer, and they can collect thermal data and a couple other things. Um, but yeah, that's uh, so. I think that should be it out of the out of the hardware uh, electronic hardware that we have on the rocket. But I could be mistaken. So. I, we're running out of time here because Charlie has a modern cell phone that only has one port, so he can't charge his phone and do the audio at the same time. Um, oh so, yeah, we're living in the future. Yeah, where where can people find more about y'all and the MIT Rocket Team? Yeah, so the um, MIT Rocket Team has a, a web presence at rocketry.mit.edu. We also run a Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube channel, and. Uh, uh, I hear rumors we may even have an Instagram. And uh, we post content on that uh, occasionally when the publicity chair, <clears throat> me, uh, feels like it. Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, when he's not being lazy, the publicity chair is usually pretty good at his job. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're, we're tracking for another launch in January. Uh, that's our next, our next planned flight for the launch of Hermes 3 and the staging demonstrator's second flight. Yeah, you don't want to be in the Mojave in the, in the summer again. Well, the, the Mojave in the summer, you know, it's, it, it beats the heck out of New Mexico in, in the summer, uh, to be honest. Uh, that's where we used to fly from. That was much worse. Uh, I think it was, made it up to 120 one summer while we were there. It was just brutal. Um, well, we're going to definitely have yeah, to have y'all back uh, on after y'all's next launch. And we'd absolutely love to be back. Um, all right. And do y'all want to uh, sign us out? Yeah. Uh, this has been the Microfab Engineering Podcast. We were your guests, uh, Luca Gorvidic and Charlie Garcia. And uh, thank you again to our wonderful hosts. Parker Dillman, Stephen Craig. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, uh, Charlie and Luca, for coming on the podcast. Good luck and Godspeed, y'all. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to that podcast, do it now. Click that bell. Hit the subscribe button. Uh, click play. That way you get the latest Met episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible, helps new listeners find us.